Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Julia, thank you very much indeed. Um, very, very warm welcome to the Hospital Club. Um, I, as Julia said, run the Hospital Club among other things. One of the things that we try and do here is to create and curate the best content or co-curate the best content with partners for our members, physical sort of building members of the club and also our online community. And um, there isn't a sort of hotter topic right now for the creative industries who we look after and embrace than the one that we're going to uh, talk about this morning. And uh, under the title, uh, Can Philanthropy uh, Save the Arts? I'm going to hand you over to Veronica Wadley, who will steer, this, steer us, I hope, through this debate um, um, uh, as in, in her usually brilliant way. So here she is, Veronica Wadley. Good morning, everyone, and thank you very much, Will, and um, welcome to the audience and to our very distinguished panel. Um, Julia, as ever, has an immaculate sense of timing, because I'm sure many of you were listening to the Today programme last week when Jeremy Hunt, the Secretary of State, announced that 2011 is the year of philanthropy. So you're in the right place at the right time, and I'm sure we'll take a very active part in this discussion. Um, first of all, I'd just like to um, introduce our, our panel of guests. Um, we have a really good mix representing different views and different areas of the arts. Um, so at the far end, we have John Studinsky, who uh, many of you will have met. He's the global head of the Corporate and Mergers and Acquisitions Advisory Group for Blackstone, but also a very, very significant philanthropist. You know, he's, a, he's basically a big cheese in the city, but he is also a very important figure in London in terms of his contribution to the arts through uh, his formerly on the board of um, the trustees of the Tate. He is uh, chairman of the um, Benjamin Franklin House and also uh, runs the Genesis Trust for Young Talent. So he's, we're delighted he's here. Next, we have Colin Tweedy on my right. Again, many of you all know him, Chief Executive of Arts and Business. He has dedicated, I would say, probably 30 years of his life to the business of arts and philanthropy. So it really is um, wonderful that he's here and he's produced many very distinguished documents setting out the case for philanthropy. And um, we look forward to hearing from him. Um, on my left, we have Julia. Peyton Jones, who is really the queen of the Serpentine Gallery. She is, she is, she's, um, she's mastered the very highly competitive art of fundraising, but she's also mastered the very delicate art of fundraising. And I think this is an amazing um, uh, combination of talents. So fantastic to have her here. Nicholas Kent, um, hot from Washington, where he's uh, been working uh, with his extraordinary um, political... A series of plays, The Great Game, about Afghanistan. I mean, he really has been a pioneer of political theatre now for many years and um, is a very brave and uh, courageous and, and really outstanding um, artistic director of the Tricycle Theatre in Kilburn. And on the end, we have Will Gompertz, who probably has done more in the last uh, six months, a year, since uh, he joined the BBC to push the arts up the Today programme's agenda. So we thank him for that. And he comes with a lot of expertise um, from his time at the Tate. So I'll just say a, a few other words um, about 
the discussion. I, I remember actually I was at an editorial intelligence debate just over a year ago and it was chaired by Robin White and in his opening statement he quoted Ernest Rutherford who I'm sure many of you know was a scientist, a great thinker and Ernest Rutherford said after the uh, First World War we have no money so we must think. And that was you know, quite a challenging statement for Robin to throw into the discussion. But actually, we, we do have money. There is, a, as a representative of the Arts Council, I'm chairman of the Arts Council in London, the Arts Council invests over £350 million a year in the arts, and it will continue to do so. It has a very vibrant mixed economy, which you all know is the three streams of funding from commercial, sponsorship, and from subsidy. So... Um, I think there's a lot of discussion to be had, and I think I'm going to hand over to John now to tell us a little bit about his thinking and perhaps a bit about the American way of thinking and how we can learn in Britain from what he has seen here and what he's seen in the States. So over to John. Thank you very much. Good morning, and thank you for that introduction, and thank you for uh, inviting me here this morning. Uh, to answer the question, uh, first, uh, can philanthropy save the arts? Um, I think it's an ill-founded question. Um, the arts have uh, prevailed and will prevail uh, before uh, philanthropy really ever came into being. Um, and when we look in particular at the arts in, in Britain and in England, um, effectively, uh, if we just look at it from the time of Shakespeare, you look at it as, at a time of a culture of the spoken word. There's someone in the front row falling asleep here already, so I've got to talk loudly so that I can, I can provoke her earlobe, maybe her earlobes too, as well as her eardrum, uh, to, to keep her awake. But um, this is a culture of the spoken word, and the arts have been a dominant factor. So I think the arts are the table, and philanthropy is one of, is one of four or five legs, and not the other way around. So philanthropy will not save the arts. The arts in this country... Uh, this is the most interesting country and culture in the world with respect to the arts. Uh, let's remember this is probably one of the two or three most strategic elements when it comes to English culture, and that is the arts. I reference Shakespeare, but as you, as you go through history and look at the last 500 years, you know, even culminating in today, uh, where you have people running arts organizations such as Nicholas Sirota and Neil McGregor, uh, and a number of other people, uh, like Stephen Daldry, who are all heavily wooed by America. Uh, Neil or Nicholas could easily have been uh, repositioned in America at four times the salaries that they're being paid in this country. So why have they chosen to remain here? They've chosen to remain here because of the mix that culture is about uh, wallpaper, it's about education, it's about cultural legacy, it's about one's way of life. Uh, and I think we have to keep that in mind with respect to the arts. I really get very cross about the way the arts have let itself get repositioned uh, over the last 25 years in this country as a form of entertainment. Um, entertainment, if you look at America, um, the arts are entertainment. Broadway is a big business. Uh, the arts in England are different. Uh, they are as much a way of life in remote villages and towns as they are in sort of our big metropolis, London. Um, and when I look at America, America is a culture of the visual. 
It's a culture of the image. It's a culture of sort of Mickey Mouse, Andy Warhol, and most of all the film industry. And it's very different. The arts are important there, but they're important there in a very different way. The arts are very much important here in the context of the spoken word. So the arts stand on their own with or without philanthropy, but philanthropy needs to be looked at. Philanthropy in this country, as you know, really became prominent in the 19th century. Uh, the middle of the 19th century, um, extraordinary things were happening in this country. In Westminster, it was one of the most uh, generous places in the world in terms of taking care of, of uh, young children, infants, uh, orphans, and it's where a number of uh, projects begun uh, to taking care of the homeless. And it was really the insights that came out of the mid-19th century Victorian England that led to nurturing a lot of the philanthropy that became popular in America at the end of the 19th century, uh, where some of the robber barons started becoming, sort of trying to purify themselves and became much more generous. Um, so again, this country has always understood philanthropy from the standpoint of giving. Now, what happened, and wh where's this strange bedfellow gotten mixed up? In the last 25 years, during the economic expansion, where people became wealthier and wealthier, lots of new people were brought into the arts by arts organizations through social networking. They were brought in through entertainment, giving nice dinners, bidding on paintings at dinners, bidding at things. So it started, became very easy to treat the arts as a form of entertainment, almost as a form of social networking, as a form of enhancing one's social prestige. What the arts organizations did was they took advantage of that, and many of them raised a lot of money. I mean, I certainly did when I was at the Tate Gallery. I'm still involved with the Tate Gallery. But we raised a lot of money to build Tate Gallery One. Uh, some organizations were better than others. Some became members' organizations. The Tate was successful and is successful because it's a member organization. It reaches out to the community. And there are three aspects of philanthropy with respect to any one organization. There's, there's fundraising. There's outreach, which is basically creating a member's organization. And then there's advocacy. What is the organization all about artistically? What is it really trying to do? You know, it, when you ask the Almeida, what's their strategy? When you ask the Royal Court Theater, what's their strategy? Every theater has a strategy in terms of what the director's view is about the type of work they put on. The same thing applies to museums. Same thing applies to any arts organization. The better arts organizations are, have good boards, have clear strategies, are disciplined about spending money, and are very clear on their, uh, their purpose in life. The poor arts organizations, and there are many, are, have boards that are there for purposes of networking or social status and aren't really there to see a business evolve. These organizations may not have clear strategies, and the individuals don't feel day-to-day -day accountability in terms of both artistic product, what I call the artistic coefficient, versus value added in terms of money. If I look at what Nick Heitner has done at the National Theater, he really cut back on his budgets on productions and focused on the quality of the production in terms of the, what he was putting on and the acting and the directing. He didn't focus on elaborate set designs because that wasn't possible. So as I work through my Genesis organization, where you know, someone the other day said, well, actually, you're not a philanthropist. You're a patron. Uh, and I think in the future, we have to look as arts organizations at a number of things. We have to bring more patrons into our uh, uh, group. And what a patron is is someone who's passionate about something, who really wants to work not just giving money in a passive way, but in an active way and being engaged, not just on the board, but perhaps with the artists and perhaps with projects 
over a three to five year period. You want to respect member organizations, people who reach out and bring more members in and raise money through that, but also develop a culture. You want donors, but donors come and go. And, and now that donors have gone in the short-term economic malaise, let's be wary of donors because they often have a short-term life. Um, but we also have long-term roles. And I, when I look at arts organizations, particularly in the country, where it's more challenging to have a funding base because there aren't corporations and there aren't lots of wealthy people as there are in London, you have to survive. And I think arts organizations, while they have the government, and I respect the Arts Council, I really want arts organizations to see themselves controlling their own destiny. I mean, England is the sense of Charles Darwin. We're the source of Charles Darwin. And remember, Charles Darwin was about survival of the fittest. And I actually believe that while the government will continue to be generous in places, the government is going to hold arts organizations more accountable to how they spend their money. And I'm a great believer that we have to continue to promulgate all the great things about England and the arts world. And it is, if you will, the thing that makes me most proud of this country. I was very frustrated during Gordon Brown and the Labour Party because they often treated the arts as entertainment, which is why they were reluctant to always fund it. I never see the arts as entertainment. It's cultural legacy, but most important, it's about education, broadly defined. And I think we have to remember that as a cornerstone of, of British culture. Thank you very much indeed, John. That really was most interesting insight. Now, <clears throat> we're gonna hand over to Colin, who has been in this business, as I said, for some years, and I'm sure we'll have some new insights. Um, thank you, Veronica. Um, Sitting between arts and business, um, I've, I've often described myself um, as the and, the ampersand between arts and business. And I remember once in, some of you have heard this joke, so I apologise for that because this is my only joke, um, is I was in Denmark and I was saying arts and business is the and between arts and business. And everyone laughed and I said to someone, why why, why was that so funny? They said, well, and in Danish means duck. So, um, so if I quack quietly for five minutes, um, hopefully I will say something um, which will annoy one or two and may interest others. Because um, the question, will philanthropy save the arts? No. But people will. And I think this is, I'd like to put this not as a riddle, and I'll explain what I mean. If you look at the two websites for the big internet campaign to save the arts when the coalition government came in, you had Save the Arts, which aimed to have 100,000 signatures. It reached 63,404 signatures by yesterday. The National Campaign for the Arts, their I Value the Arts campaign, received 19,369. Now, if you add those together, you get 82,773 people who said the arts matter. Of course, there would have been double counting between those two campaigns. Perhaps it wasn't helpful that we had two campaigns, but beside the point. The 38-degree campaign to save the forests is less than a week old. It has, yesterday, at four o'clock yesterday already 384,977 supporters. Over 300,000 people have supported the campaign for the forests, more than the arts have done in five months. Now, we know that forests for the, the British nation are a primeval thing. 
And we know that a government who says it's a middle-class pastime has no understanding of the north of England where more and more of the working classes now out of employment have always walked. Wainwright's vision for the Lake District is not something for the middle classes or for the rich. It is for everyone. And the great challenge we have for the arts is people will save the forests and people will save the libraries. And I have not done the research on how many people are now battling for the saving of um, public libraries. Yes, they can save the arts, but it appears they are less committed to fight for the arts than for our forests or our public libraries. And if they will not fight, they will not fund. If you engage, ignite, as John has so clearly said with his own passion, you'll get people's money. Philanthropy at present will only support and or save a small group of elite metropolitan arts, well represented here today. But I would argue that is simply not enough. Our private investment in culture figures, which were announced last Thursday, and I'm just going to give you the figures for those so it's the facts. <coughs> Overall decrease in total philanthropy and sponsorship and trust and foundation money fell by 3% in real terms to 658 million. Business investment, which I argue is not philanthropy but sponsorship, fell 11%, its third consecutive year of decrease to 144 million. Individual philanthropy was down 4% though still accounts for the majority, 55% of investment at 359 million. And trusts and foundations overtook business investment for the first time since 2004 to 155 million. Now, these are, I said in the press release, encouraging because actually this is the height of the, re of the recession, the epicenter of the storm but they're still down. There is less money going into the arts from the private sector than there has been for the last three years. And arts and business doesn't estimate that that figure will, in, will increase until 2013. The rich are more generous to the arts than the poor, as are the middle income bracket. But the poor have always given a larger percentage of their income to the arts and to charities generally. And of course, in a biblical sense, it is the widow's mind. Only 2% of self-confessed or self-admitted philanthropists give to the arts. Only 2%. So there are grounds for optimism and, of course, scope, as John has already said. But, and it's a big but, 83% of all individual philanthropy goes to the arts in London. And that vast majority of that 83% goes to 25 London organisations. Virtually no one helps the small and local. Businesses are more widely helping in sponsorship locally and regionally than philanthropists. John Passmore Edwards, between 1889 and 1904, and again it um, backs up what John was saying, gave 90% of, of his wealth to libraries, hospitals, art galleries and technical colleges and schools in Cornwall and the poorer parts of London. And he gave thousands and thousands of library books to the rest of the UK. And Andrew Carnegie, perhaps the world's greatest philanthropist ever, and that includes Bill Gates, endowed hundreds of libraries across Britain again over 100 years ago. This was money given by the rich 
for the poor, for the cultural life of their nation. Can we see this sort of local philanthropy replicated today? Well, Michael Hintzer gave two million to save the Wandsworth Library, and his wife is the chairman of the Wandsworth Library. The requirement to Wandsworth Council was we want it to be an independent charity. We do not want it under the grip of the county council, of the, um, the borough council. We need to galvanise local commitment. 20 of Dorset's 32 libraries are planned to be shut. It's a rural community. It doesn't have the Serpentine Gallery. The Bournemouth Symphony plays there rarely. Competition from universities who are having all their funding removed for the arts and humanities courses will be a huge pressure on the arts. The arts are absolutely transformatory in human life, as John has so clearly and eloquently said. But philanthropy will not save them unless we simply rethink the way philanthropy and giving is reflected across the country. The metropolitan elite can be saved, but the rest is in danger of going to the wall. Thank you. Thank you very much, Colin. Colin is ever a master of all the facts and figures. He puts us to shame. So now we're going to hear from Julia. Thank you. Um, I've had the very great privilege of being director of the Serpentine since 1991. And in that period, I've had to learn to fundraise. But I've also had to learn how to create the best possible programs <coughs> across now art, architecture, and design, more recently since 2006 with Hans Ori Gobrist, who's co-director of exhibitions and programs with me. And the two Ps go together. So when we talk about philanthropy, let us also remember why we're talking about philanthropy, because that, the, the, the model of this whole discussion has to be to make work in the arts possible. I pulled out the dictionary de definition of philanthropy because it has a, a part of it which I really love. It says, it's a desire to improve the material, social, and spiritual welfare of humanity, especially through charitable activities, a philanthropic action or organization, and importantly, general love for or benevolence toward the whole of humankind. Put in that context, uh, philanthropy really appears to me heroic and something to be celebrated even more than we do so now. So what does that mean? Of course, we love humankind, at least to a degree, but essentially, altruistic behavior is more than general bonhomie. Within philanthropy is a kernel of desire to help save one's fellow man. But the reality of philanthropy is that it's about choice. Philanthropists, and it's important to note that philanthropists are individuals, not corporates, trusts and foundations, etc., do not have to be philanthropic. Therefore, they cannot save the arts because it's a choice. They do not have to help. There is no philanthropic oath. And as a result, we can't rely on them to save us. Americans look at philanthropy in a particular way, and they're probably the acknowledged epitome of success in this domain. Alexis de Tocqueville wrote in Democracy in America in 1835 that Americans of all ages, all stations of life, all types of disposition are forever forming associations. There are not only commercial and industrial associations in which they all take part, but others of a thousand different types, religious, moral, serious, futile, very general and very limited, immensely large and very minute. At the head of any new undertaking, in the United States, you are sure to find an association. In democratic, democratic countries, knowledge, 
of how to combine is the mother of all other forms of knowledge. On its progress depends that of all others. The desire and ability to form associations has made America really a role model in terms of the extraordinary success they have in philanthropy. At its root is an extraordinary volunteerism and desire to improve the lot of one's fellow man without an essential reliance on government or corporate support to create the institutions that make a great society. It is a hands-on approach to loving humankind which is enormously powerful and literally by the people for the people. In looking to advance the arts, philanthropy has a key role but fits within a partnership model that requires the participation of all parties. <coughs> government, individuals, trusts, foundations, and corporate sponsors must work together to, to create the circumstances in which the arts can thrive. Institutions need to be aggressive about fundraising and entrepreneurial in seeking out opportunities. We need to follow the Americans in creating a large core of volunteers who give money themselves, provide leadership, and engage their friends and associates. It's critical that we engage our, our current donors and seek out new donors who will provide philanthropic leadership, showing the way by which giving, in whatever way they can, as John uh, has alluded to, can bring on board like-minded individuals. Volunteerism is really the most salient feature of the, of the American phil philanthropic uh, endeavor. And it is rooted in the sites, uh, insight shared by de Tocqueville. It stands to reason that the more engaged the people are who encompass an organization, be they employees, consumers, or, or donors, at any level, the stronger the organization is. We must now engage the people within our reach and ensure they are protect, pro proactive in their support for fundraising. We need to transform the emotional connection with our institutions into financial support and leverage the potential within our reach. We are volunteer-governed through boards of trustees and should ensure that we take advantage of these strong groups of volunteers who surround us to help us raise the funds that we need. It is possible to bring strong, build strong communities wherever we are in the country. Any audience has the potential for becoming a community of supporters. As soon as you have two people arriving for an event, in this case an arts event, you already have a body of support. And usually, it's more than two who come to see whatever it is that's on, on being presented. Two can tango and three can be a crowd. Our audiences are the supporters that we must develop, first by bringing them into the fold and then by offering them the opportunity and get to engage. But it is important to remember that this is not a zero-sum game. We're not in a situation where either public money must replace private backing or vice versa. Arts organizations' ambitions must be to increase the overall pot of funding to the arts. And to succeed, the public and private sectors must work together. The government can help to increase philanthropy in support of the arts, and this government's approach to cultural philanthropy will encourage individual citizens and corporations to show that they have a stake in the public realm and to establish long-term relationships with the arts and cultural organisations. The government can encourage cultural philanthropy in three principal ways, by encouraging individual and corporate giving as public good, and ensuring those that who give are properly acknowledged and their philanthropy celebrated. By using the revenue system to reward both donors and recipient organisations through tax foregone. 
and by incentivising giving through match funding using government and national lottery resources. All three of these means of stimulating cultural philanthropy are now in place, but there are significant ways in which improvements can be made in order to achieve the government's objectives. They can help to foster cultural philanthropy by publicly honouring people, but also they can um, improve the tax relief should it be given to donors at the standard as well as the upper rates of tax. And this subject, of course, is very significantly debated, not uh, to date with any success with the Treasury. There is also an immense potential for us to grow the size of the philanthropic pie, as Colin um, uh, has been said so eloquently, the pie that seems to be reducing. 60% of the UK's biggest donors, those giving more than £100 a month, have incomes of less than 26000 last year. I really want us all collectively to let that particularly salient figure drop, because this is not about people with large sums of money giving. The lion's share of the people who are giving have incomes that are probably significantly less than our own. Which is to say that the majority of those who give, as we have just described, have the least amount of funds. Only 2% of philanthropically active individuals currently give to the arts, despite individual giving to the arts having risen by 150 million in 2001 to 359 million in 2010. However, when compared to uh, the running costs of our national institutions, the British Museum, Tate, Royal Academy and Victoria and Albert Museum, and the National Gallery, which together totaled to some 273 million, it puts into context how small that figure in reality is. We need to create a society where philanthropy, philanthropy <coughs> is de rigueur, where giving to the arts is not considered a luxury, but an essential. Understanding cultural philanthropy as a programme to advance the arts, with a system encompassing public and private support, will help us to develop a new group of active donors, at all levels, large and small both financial and also through pro bono help. And we can learn an enormous amount from the American approach. We can create a culture of personal investment in philanthropy and develop a spirit where philanthropy does not end within a donation. We can foster a notion that people should bring everything they can to the organisation and causes that they support, be that time, money, managerial support, introductions to other potential donors, or championing the cause within their broader communities. With 60% of the adult population engaged with culture at least three times in the last year, more people are culturally active in the UK than give philanthropically across all charitable causes. The potential for increasing giving to the arts from existing audiences is enormous. Thank you very much. Now over to Nick. I think we might have a dose of cold water, probably. No, not, no, not a dose no, of cold water. But Nick um, is very much in the front line right. as, as running a, right. a, a small theatre in North London. Let's hear from Nick. Um, I've um, been struggling with pernicious flu, and, um, and so I've written some of these thoughts down, and I'm going to read them, I'm afraid. Um, I've been um, helped by a mixture of philanthropy of friends and the National Health Service. <laughs> a good combination. Um, I do believe... Philanthropy has a role in the arts, but I think the short answer to the question, can philanthropy um, save the arts, is no. We're a small organisation, we turn over three and one-third million pounds a year, and we raise roughly 600,000 from donations and public giving and trusts, um, which is quite, I think, quite a large sum of money. But it can't 
dictate what we do. Um, I'm a great believer in the European tradition of the state valuing and supporting the arts. The arts contribute to the well-being of the country, to its society, to its spiritual fulfillment. And in the last 20 years, through state intervention, including the lottery, the British arts, particularly the theatre and the visual arts, have been one of the world's great success stories. I think governments want us to believe that the arts are a drain on the economy, in the same way that we're conditioned to believe that the private sector company that manufactures pills is a wealth creator, and the state-funded doctor that prescribes those pills is not. It's our tradition, and I think rightly, that the state should provide the wherewithal to look after our health, both physically and spiritually, and spiritually is what the arts does. Reti relying entirely on private donations is alien to our tradition and our society and brings with it huge problems. And I want to highlight some of the problems here. Despite the same tax breaks as the US, in fact, the tax breaks here are slightly better because you get gift aid or the organizations get gift aid on top of the tax relief the donor gets, British pat patronage seems totally unwilling to give the arts anywhere near the money it needs. There's not enough money here. In the US, 1% of the US population owns 23% of the wealth. 23% of the wealth owned by 1%. Individuals in London just don't have that personal wealth. And anyway, London per capita, according to the Financial Times, is the meanest part of the UK <laughs> as regards donations. Philanthropy, in my view, stifles innovation and the right to fail. And that right is so important. And it ensures, and I think this is the most important point, it ensures that philanthropists who donate to the arts replicate themselves and their taste in terms of audience and program with the arts they receive. And that replication is a real problem. And I think, lastly, most artists in America, and I've spent the last three months there, will tell you the US system is broke and they look with envy at our system. As I said, I spent three months in America. I went to three theaters uh, board meetings, sitting next to billionaires at those board meetings, and each of these theatres were conducting crisis meetings about funding, and all were looking at the US system, the UK system, and saying, we wish we had that here. They were having financial difficulties because of the recession, because individual donations had dried up, and all had audiences that replicated their donor base. All three of those theatres generally charged prices that their subscribers could afford, but that the poorer sections of their community could not. And all three were moving further and further away in their programming and in their audiences from the healthy community audiences that we have built here. I don't think you should underestimate what the lottery and the Labour government did during the last 
10, 15 years, making the arts responsive to the community, widening audiences, making it accessible to all, making it exciting and challenging, and giving audiences and artists breathing space and the right to fail. The huge danger of a dependency on philanthropy is it tends to strangle innovation and change. Philanthropy usually reflects one person's viewpoint, most often a traditional viewpoint, and rarely reflects the totality of a broader society. I'll give you one very strong illustration of this danger. When I started in the theatre in the late 60s and 70s, there were about 80 or so black professional actors working in the theatre. New black plays were a complete rarity. There was Mustafa Matura, Michael Abensetz, and Alfred Fagan, and that was about it. There were plays, their plays were put on at three subsidised theatres, the Royal Court, the Travers, and the Open Space. Slowly in the 80s and 90s, more actors and playwrights came onto the scene, but the struggle for integrated casting in the theatre went on solely in black subsidised companies and subsidised houses. Those companies like Temba, the Black Theatre Co-op, Stratford East and ourselves at the Tricycle, none of these companies at that time attracted much, if any, private money. There are now around 4,000 black actors and countless black playwrights making the theatre in London and in Britain one of the most exciting theatres in the world. But it was only eight years ago that we had the first black British play being presented commercially in the West End. That was Elmina's Kitchen. It's taken almost 40 years for commercial profit-centred money to catch up with cultural diversity. And I would argue that philanthropy has not even got there yet. Raising private money for black work <coughs> is still a huge mountain to climb. I mean, just look at this audience. Those interested in philanthropy, there is one black MP in this audience, and that's the only black face I see in this audience or on this panel. It just shows the problem and the mountain we still have to climb. This all happened, this movement of black theatre and integrating cultural diversity happened through state-subsidised arts. And I would argue that the arts is much healthier and much richer through this diversity. And philanthropy is least well-equipped to recognise this sort of diversity and this sort of change in society. Yes, philanthropy does help the arts and is to be welcomed, but it cannot save the arts, not unless you want heritage arts because it's, it can only help without controversy, without diversity, without innovation on the whole, and without fluidity. Thank you. Thanks very much. I, I knew we could rely on Nick to uh, add an extra element to the debate. So over to Will. Well, the, the awful thing about going fifth in these sort of talked is that every set of them interesting and it leaves you to pick up the bones of it all and the good thing is of course you can just improv you don't have to write a speech like 
my lovely colleagues have done, so I haven't done that. So, so, uh, A couple of thoughts, really, from what I've heard. Uh, I agree with John that I think the subject, the title, the question being asked is the wrong question. It's a poor question. Can philanthropy save the arts? It immediately casts the arts as a victim and uh, the philanthropy as a a saviour. You know, therapist is a saviour. I don't think that works at all well for either party. Um, and uh, I think is a negative thing. It also suggests that the arts is just a very narrow form of what we see in our country today because there's things like publishing, pop music, architecture, fashion, film, comedy, all fantastic art forms, all vibrant. Much of them have got very important things to say. I take John's point about entertainment, but, you know, these important art forms, none of which get any philanthropic support. Um, And it also presupposes the title that the arts need saving. Now, of course, um, you know, one would hate it if the arts weren't here, but they are in rude health, and we know these cuts are coming, and so on and so forth. But there is nothing to suggest yet that the arts are in dire straits and philanthropists can come and save the the day. Um, And it also is worth remembering, and it hasn't really been mentioned, that much of the arts in this country have been built on fantastic philanthropic gestures, which are very innovative. So if you look at the British Museum, Tate Gallery, National Gallery, all based on great philanthropic acts. You look at Glyndebourne, King's Place, the Sculpture Park in Edinburgh, whose name I can't remember, uh, Garsington Opera, all based on visionary philanthropists who've had an idea and the courage to see it through. So again, this idea that philanthropist is some sort of dozy banker with a few million to spend and everybody's going to run around trying to get it off them. I think it's unfair. I think philanthropists on the whole are um, innovative, intelligent, inquiring, positive people who actually want to make a difference. Um, That uh, said, um, I think can philanthropy do more for the arts? It certainly can. Uh, It was quite interesting that today um, spot spot that uh, Veronica was alluding to is I did that having been invited by Jeremy to go and join his weekly philanthropy meeting. Jeremy Hunt, sorry, to join his weekly philanthropy meeting. And he made it quite clear very quickly that uh, he has absolutely no levers whatsoever other than putting it on the agenda, which he clearly has done. So um, what struck me then when I heard that is, can the arts do more for philanthropy? I.e., can they be more innovative in the way they approach it? And I was surprised when I looked at uh, an online thing that um, Colin was involved with called The Big Give this year, and there was a part of it called The Big Arts Give, where lots of arts institutions were invited to um, pitch philanthropic ideas, and then people online would go and put, put money towards The Big Give, and then hopefully there's some match funding there too. And I was appalled, frankly, by so many of the um, bids by the arts institutions, which you know, didn't run more to, you know, the ideas didn't run further than can you help fund our overheads. There was no specific idea. So I think arts, there is a challenge to the arts community to think more clearly and cleverly about what it needs philanthropists to do and package those ideas in a way that they become um, something that philanthropists want to support. But, But I think there is a huge issue in all this, which I think has been touched on by all the panellists, I think it is possible that philanthropy could rupture the arts. I think there is a really big issue between rich and poor in this country, and I suspect within the arts, and I suspect that's going to get 
worse. Colin made the stats uh, clear, and I'll repeat them, that it's something like the, the big beasts of the arts, the big, big beasts, the big institutions, uh, account for about 4% of the arts uh, ecology in this country, and they take up about 80% of the philanthropy. And London, again, equates to, I think, about something like 85% of philanthropic giving. And the regions are incredibly vulnerable. I think over 50% of the regional uh, and smaller arts venues don't get any philanthropic giving at all. Not to say all those arts institutions which aren't on our radar because they're not in our community. I, th I completely agree with the, the comment made about uh, the social diversity within the arts. It's getting increasingly <coughs> less so. And if you look at the figures coming out of arts institutions, they are predominantly white, middle-class, tertiary-educated institutions. When the country is going exactly the opposite way. And I think there might be a suggestion where there is a, the phrase that charity starts at home. Maybe philanthropy should start at home. And maybe those big arts organisations should think more about how they can help other arts organisations, which are smaller in their community or elsewhere in the country. Maybe there should be something along the idea of twinning, as you see, which is quite a vulgar idea, I know, but... Um, and been badly executed as far as towns are concerned throughout the country. The idea that an arts institution takes responsibility, one of these big arts institutions takes responsibility for a smaller and vulnerable arts institution in a different part of the community than its own. Otherwise, it starts to look like a very smug club indeed. And I know National Theatre are looking at, at ways of doing that. And more than that, mentoring and sharing ideas and, and resources. I think there's an awful lot to be done. I think philanthropy as a general idea, is a, is, is a good thing. Why wouldn't it be that people should be contributing to the artistic um, uh, culture of this, of this country? But I think it is really important that the ladder doesn't get pulled up and that we end up forgetting that all those small, diverse, young arts organisations, which nobody has heard of because they're coming out of some town hall in the back end of beyond, don't get forgotten and don't get left behind. Well, thank you very much indeed. That was a very good way of drawing together the strands. Um, unfortunately, one of our guests is, is going to have to leave. John is, is on a plane to New York in, in about five minutes, so I'm not quite sure how he's going to fly in to Heathrow. five minutes. So, anyway, so I would just like to say thank you very much to John, and I'm sorry you won't be here to answer some of the penetrating questions, which I'm sure will be coming shortly. So, John, if you want to just slip away. Um, then... <laughs> But John is not a dozy banker. That's the yeah, one no, thing John is. <laughs> John, is there one quick um, final statement um, that you'd like to make, perhaps, um, having heard I, I think this. Uh, I think the panel is, is an impressive panel in terms of covering the range. I, I, do, you know, I, I do think one has to look at this um, partnership between philanthropy and the arts. And the, the best example I can give you is the Royal Court Theatre, which is really the most important <coughs> theatre uh, and, and of generating new writing in the English-speaking world. So it allows us to be contemporary to some of the comments on this panel about, about black writing. The English-speaking the English element, the Royal Court Theatre has uh, new writing programs in 16 countries, which we've been working with them on for the last 20 years. So they are very close to their members. And I think the other point I'd make is organizations have to have members. They have to be able to have some nights where people who have very little money can have a ticket for a pound, and they have to have other nights where everybody who wants to be very grand and glamorous can actually pay a lot of money, um, because that is the cross-section. And, and I do believe that the membership approach to the arts is important. 
But I also think getting to the artistic side, uh, I don't think philanthropists should get involved with the artistic side at all. Uh, that, that's art, art, artists are pure. On the other hand, artists also need to be managed financially because they have no, no knowledge of money and they can destroy organizations because they have no sense of reality, which is the role of the director, uh, the sort of the chief executive versus the artistic director. And I think in organizations where you have that partnership, you have a very powerful way to move the arts forward. Thank you very much yeah, indeed. Disappear. Right, we're going to open um, the debate up to the audience now. Um, it's very interesting having heard all these thoughts. I think, in theory, you could all go home now because I think everyone seems to have decided that philanthropy can't save the arts. But actually, I'd like you to stay and I'd like you to take part for an hour or so. Um, and we really welcome your ideas um, from, from the audience. Um, just on the title, Can Philanthropy Save the Arts? I think maybe it emerged out of the Save the Arts campaign, which was launched last year. So, you know, there, is a, there was a logic to it, but it was meant to be provocative. So um, we'd like to hear from the audience, as I, I'm sure you all know the etiquette of this, um, we, are being, um, we are online, so please, um, you need to use the microphone, you need to say who you are, which organisation you represent, and specifically, actually I think it might help the conversation to say who specifically you'd like to ask the question to, and then we can go from there, and I'll, we'll probably take two questions at a time. So um, if you could like put your hand up and then I'll pick you as we go around to see what, um, what uh, contributions you can make. I mean, I think it's interesting that philanthropy is, is on the table. I mean, maybe we should also be talking about how to expand the pool of giving. I think that's something that is really, would be really welcome, particularly to the arts organisations that are here today. So let's hear from you, please. Thank you. Tiffany Jenkins, the Institute of Ideas. I wonder if I could challenge Nicholas Kent's, I think, rather rosy eyed view of state funding. I certainly think in the last 10 years you've had quite a dampening and deleterious impact upon the arts. You can't just blame the state for this, of course, but they've certainly introduced a very instrumental accounting way of measuring the arts. We've had to fill in all sorts of forms that have proved the economic benefits of the arts. We've had to fill in forms, and we've seen many forms being filled in on the social benefits of the arts. Certainly the, the artistic language, the language of beauty, texture, and melody, is entirely absent from state funding. I think artists and arts organisations have been complicit in that, um, and I think what we need to see really is a, more, a discussion of more intrinsic benefits of the arts. I don't think business can resolve that, but I think perhaps philanthropists can perhaps stimulate a more artistic conversation with the arts, because I don't think state funding has done it. I think to do that, though, we do need to challenge some very anti-business sentiment that is fairly contemporary. I think you saw the most kind of recent and obvious example of that was the protests against BP, which was an absolutely bizarre and childish protest, um, really, at a very inopportune time. So maybe less state funding and maybe more philanthropy is actually a way to save the arts. Uh, should we take the second question from the gentleman just in the row in front on the aisle? Thank you. Morris Mendoza, uh, it's just a very um, quick question on countries to look to for other examples of uh, where they might be doing it better, because there was quite a lot of mention, reference to the United States, but uh, no other countries were mentioned, and I wondered if there were other interesting examples. Yeah. Thank you. Well, yes, should we start with Nick replying to the state funding question from Tiffany? Yes, um, I, I mean, I think that, that the Arts Council was somewhat heavy-handed over quite a long period. I think they're much less heavy-handed now. I think Veronica's influence might be rather a good thing. Um, 
I think the Arts Council got overbloated itself, um, but I do think there should be an element of accountability of public funding. And um, there is no element of accountability of, of philanthropy in any way. It's just one person's whim. Um, and so um, I, I would prefer that system, the Arts Council system, frankly, over one person having a whim that they particularly like Fabergé eggs and all the money should go into that, rather than we should somehow or other, if we can, reflect the cultural diversity of the country and our arts. I agree filling in forms isn't a way to provide that, but if you start at least telling people that that is a goal you're aiming for, like Labour said, we're aiming for free admission to museums, and they also said at one point that they wanted free admission, admission to theatres for under-25s. I totally disagree with free admissions for under-25s to theatres, because I think it devalues the art, and I think everyone can afford £1 or £1.50. But I do agree with e good economic pricing for people who can't afford the arts, and I think affordability and accessibility was one of the main thrusts of the Arts Council's intervention and the lottery's intervention over the last 15, 20 years. And I don't think, I think it was done with a heavy hand, but I think it's being done now with a much lighter hand, and we've inherited some of the goodies from that in many ways. Thank you very much, Nick. I think Julia wanted to pick up on the question about other examples yeah. of philanthropic um, support from abroad. Um, the Serpentine Gallery gets 18% uh, funding from government. So that means that in any one year we raise 82% ourselves a year. We always retain free admission. Uh, the largest donor base uh, to uh, that 82% is individuals. Um, philanthropy seems to be the new buzzword that everybody is sort of latched onto as some kind of uh, focus for the current economic downturn and also cut in funding to the arts. Um, our programs are resolutely broad. We focus on art from China, India and the Middle East in terms of uh, continents, but our, our program is culturally diverse, not as much as it should be, but it nevertheless is culturally diverse. Now, the reason I give these examples is um, to say that it is perfectly possible, we have found, to have a model to run an arts organisation whereby there is no interference whatsoever in the programmes, either by anybody who gives to us or at board level, do the programmes that we want to do to, <coughs> and to uh, achieve 800,000 visitors a year. Now, um, the fact that I cite America as the model to look to is because in the Western world at least, they are the country that has least public funding and have to raise the most significant amount uh, from other sources. And so therefore they are the obvious model to learn from because they have had to be very successful, they have extraordinary arts organisations that we all know. So in casting around in this new economy that we're all inhabiting, it is who does it differently, who does it well, and where is the learning? So that is why the predication is to, towards America. That being said, if there are other countries that are, are, are as successful, great, let's hear about them. As far as continental Europe is concerned, the level of pub public subsidy used to be significantly <coughs> higher than it was here. And in the 90s, and indeed the early 2000s, I always looked to continental Europe and said, why can't we have this level of government support? For us... The, the low level of government support through the Arts Council England has been endemic for some time. 
So it comes from experience that I, I make my points. Um, I think it'd be really interesting. Thank you, Julia. I think it'd be really interesting to hear from any arts organisations that we might have in the audience who um, have had experience of fundraising, perhaps difficulties with fundraising, and you know some sort of very much first-hand knowledge of you know the, of, of what has happened within their organisations. Is there anyone here who'd who'd like to represent an arts organisation? Right, we have somebody. I'm Julia Pascal from Pascal Theatre Company. We're a small arts funding organisation with no public funding from the Arts Council. We have found that there is a pocket of funding coming from the city to help with drama workshops for underprivileged children. And I have not found any problem in, in running workshops for children in parts of London coming from families who are refugees, who don't have, the parents don't have English as first language, who have problems with learning, but yet we give them free drama classes after school. And the, the money is coming from rich gentlemen who died in the 18th century in the city, who left their money to the city. And these small pockets are dotted around in small foundations and are there to help these children. And these children would never have after-school drama or any access to any extracurricular cultural activity. So not only does it help them become aware that there is such a thing as theatre and drama, that helps them with fluency and literacy. We haven't talked about education at all today, and I'd love us to talk about that. Okay. Thank you. Was there a specific question, or just to, just to, add. to add? Thank you very much. And I think we have a question in the front row. Uh, morning. I'm Stephen Bedo. I run ArtQuest, which is an Arts Council London-funded organisation. And we support contemporary visual artists through advice, information, residencies. But unlike a lot of... Uh, arts organisations, we don't have a gallery, we're not a production house and that's a real problem for a lot of visual arts organisations and other organisations that don't have tangible products to promote and it's very difficult to generate interest from um, fundraisers or philanthropists or donors when you're not producing something and a lot of the arts is back, is back room stuff it's uh, the support that you give artists in order to make their work mm -hmm. And it's incredibly difficult to generate an interest from someone who can't stand in a gallery afterwards, yes. uh, that kind of thing. So I'm, sure, I'm sure you have a wonderful website, but perhaps Colin could help on that. Um, well, I'm not, I don't have any money any longer. Um, how, um, that's been taken away. Um, but one, I mean, one thing which has not been mentioned, and a lot of trusts and foundations get incredible... We have no represent... Other than, sorry, the Genesis Foundation, which was represented by John, which is a relatively small foundation, though very important for contemporary art and music. Trusts and foundations get deeply pissed off that they're never represented. The, as we now know, the um, trusts and foundations... I mean, when you're thinking of the Esme Fairbairn, the um, Foil, the um, Rain Foundation, the Hamlin Foundation... When you, we mention 18th century philanthropists, um, there are 19th and 20th century philanthropists who, whose foundations are still giving. I mean, the Western Foundation, the Walton Foundation, um, the Sackler Foundation, which is giving five million, well, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know um, a certain amount of large sums of money to um, the new serpentine um, development. Trust and foundations are incredibly important, and they're often neglected. And in America, they're far bigger um, than they are in the U UK. We have very few corporate foundations. But um, the important thing is that the development of philanthropy is 
is not 19th century philanthropy, I would argue. Um, we have been giving money to the arts since we crawled out of our caves. I mean, it's, 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 it's historical ignorance to say that it's, it's, it's now a modern concept. State funding of the arts is a modern concept, um, not philanthropy. I'm not saying state funding is bad. I think state funding is fabulous, and I think the UK has, a per, a, has had the best model. By the way, the best model for is now Australia. And remember, that only two countries in Western Europe are now increasing their funding for the arts. France by 1.5% and Norway by 4%. Norway because of oil, France because of the French people and the French government believe culture is absolutely second to none. They know that the Minister of Culture is one of the most important positions in the state. That's why France has great art. So have we, but the French believe it in the, with a passion that we don't have. The problem is not everyone is going to be funded by the private sector. That's why we have the state. That's why we have the Arts Council. The problem is we're having state funding eroded by the Arts Council, state funding eroded for local authorities. And so the squeeze is on the people like you represent who don't have as... Um, I was going to say that smug club, which you so rather cruelly put it, is absolutely right. There is a smug club... And I think we have to change that smug club. We have to revolutionise the way we perceive the arts and the way people who have money perceive it. So your example is a very challenging one because you are the grassroots... I'm sorry, I don't mean to be presumptive. You are the future. You are bringing the new talent in. And at the moment, what's in danger of happening, particularly with education... With all the music and the um, art schools, the humanities and arts degrees at university, they are, if, if, if we're not careful, going to be the privilege of the middle class. And that's what we've got to stop. And that we have to change that. And I think that what you're raising is an important point, and none of us at the moment got the answer. Some more questions from the floor. Oh, lots of hands going up. Okay, um, the front row, and I think the gentleman there's in, a, in, a, in row, row, sorry, row three... I'm being very patient with a pale blue shirt. No, there's a woman with a microphone. Who, oh, right. Who, you, already, you got there first. Okay. You who's go first. very important to the tell, arts for a generation. Tell, tell, us, tell us who you are. I know it's on. Um, I'm Prue Skeen, and I currently run a board development program for the Claw Leadership. I've also had a long association with Rombert Dance Company and would absolutely endorse what the gentleman in the front said about companies that don't have buildings in which to entertain and host people. I would put in a big plea for touring companies as well as because they do operate throughout the UK, but they come and go uh, for a relatively short time and there just isn't time to build <coughs> strong philanthropic bases apart from, from London. Um, but on the, on the board development front, what I did like, would like to ask the panel as a whole is um, the role of boards themselves and their opinions on the role of boards themselves in philanthropic giving. Um, we organise a lot of board development days and the question always comes up about should board members themselves give? And that raises quite a lot of interesting discussion because nobody wants the American system of give, get or get off. But on the other hand, given that most people do give something to charity, board members are often surprised when you point out that the organisation that they are involved with is themselves a charity. <laughs> and no, again, um, in terms of the diversity of boards, I can see that any question of board members giving can 
be a difficult yes. and, and tentative one. But on the other hand, if the people most con closely concerned and in fact responsible for that organization don't have a culture of giving something themselves, mm. then it seems difficult to ask other people to I give. I think that's a really important question. And I think perhaps rather than taking another, qu another question now, let's deal with that. I mean, give and ask is the other sort of um, what, what people say about joining uh, boards. You've got to be prepared to give, you've got to be prepared to ask. Um, how comfortable do, do the arts organisations represented here feel with that concept? And what do you think the, the role of boards should be in terms of what they add in value, both um, in, in, in knowledge and support, but also financial support? What, what's your view? Um, we have a working board, and um, Colin Tweedy, I should say, is on it, which is a great bonus for us. Um, and what I mean by a working board is those people who are on it uh, provide pro bono help within their expertise. And um, most recently, we've got a £2.4 million donation uh, for help in kind from Deloitte. And one of the um, members of the board, our treasurer, is a senior partner at Deloitte, but he's been on the board for something like 14 years. I suppose I see them as an incredibly sophisticated series of volunteers. Um, however, uh, people always assume that the Serpentine Board is a fundraising board, which it is not. There is only one person on the board who is chairman of the council, this largest group of individuals um, that I mentioned earlier who, who give to us. So I must say, I looked at the American model and said, oh, how wonderful it would be if the board fundraised. Uh, I don't believe that you sh people should be invited onto the board because of their ability to give. And the independence of an arts organisation to be programmatically free to do what they want, which is how we are, on the, on the basis that we provide a break-even budget at the end of each year. If we can do that, then the programme is entirely ours. And there has never been any confusion about that uh, in the time that I've been there. So I suppose I would say... In terms of the contribution that board make, members make, in future, I would hope that our board would also be um, involve people who could open doors to us in terms of fundraising. Thank you. And Nick, perhaps you could tell us a little about your experience of boards and what you expect your board to do, because I do think this is a big issue, for, particularly for small organisations. I mean, good governance is incredibly important, you know, particularly in organisations that's receiving taxpayers' money. It needs to be well-governed, you know, and how do you actually get a really strong board if you're a small, not well-known organisation? So, Nick, you are very well-known, so, but you are medium to small, so perhaps you can tell us a little bit about your experience. Well, well, it is very difficult. I mean, we have a board that's primarily concerned with good governance and all of whom are giving their time, obviously, pro bono, with their different expertise. But the atmosphere has changed on our board quite considerably over the last eight, seven, eight years towards fundraising. Um, I think all our board do expect to be asked to contribute according to their means. Um, some of them are actors who don't work very often, but they still are expected to give maybe a pound or two, but something. And everyone accepts that that is the situation. We are trying to look at, um, we, we have a fundraising committee that puts on one big event each year which raises about 50 to 60,000 pounds. And we are now looking about having a fundraising board that actually is working in parallel with our governing board. And we're seeing whether that's feasible 
there would be one or two seats for that fundraising board on the main board so that they couldn't outweigh the people who are dealing with the governance and the artistic freedom, but they would have a connection with the main board and their whole remit would be to help the advocacy of the theatre in um, patronage and business circles. And that's what we're looking to develop. But it's, it's difficult, very difficult. Does anyone from the audience have a particular insight into boards and governance? Front row. Um, I'm Sally Taylor. I'm director of the London Centre for Arts and Cultural Exchange. I also happen to be chair of the PRS for Music Foundation. I'd like to look at the other end of this from boards. Um, I think Colin, what Colin has said is absolutely vital. The, the vote, however you split it in terms of did people care about the arts and do they care about forests, seems to me to actually represent the fact that people don't feel they have an ownership of the arts in this country. And yet you have Ed Vasey last week saying that technology is going to be the answer and everybody should be looking at crowdsourcing in order to support their own individual arts organisations. And there are examples of this. In fact, there are in today's independent as an example of this in the music business. Colin, I'd be very interested to hear your views on how one can gain greater ownership of the arts for loads of people in this country who would love to support them, but yet seem to be dealt seem to see a very sort of urban elite who have access um, and who keep being asked. I'll give you a small example from where we live in Norfolk. A local theatre company who ha whose members support bursaries for local kids to go to drama school. They're usually <laughs> proud of the fact that each year they manage to send three or four local children to drama school at the same time as producing plays. That seems to me to be a model that could be replicated, for example. Thank you. Now, there's a gentleman in the third row who I've, who's been looking at me for the last half an hour, so he's, oh. um, he's going to definitely get the microphone. And after that, um, there's, 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 a, there's another gentleman in the front row uh, who I think is... And Diane Abbott is coming next. So third row, first row, Roger, and then Diane. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm Graham Hitchin. Um, I just wanted actually to echo something that Sally's just said. I think it's quite interesting that all the panel members talked about... Um, the facts, and I'm generalising now, but there was, you know, that the large organisations in London get the lion's share of funding, and I think they get the lion's share of funding from major donors. And it seems to me there are two types of philanthropy. There is that type of philanthropy, which is important, and we've been talking a lot, lot about that. But what we haven't been talking about is something I wanted to ask Julia to, to perhaps <coughs> to go back to the, the, the facts that she mentioned, where she talked about the fact that the vast majority of philanthropic giving in the country to any, any form of giving is from people who earn less than £26,000 a year. Now, that seems to me a very, very important fact that we need to focus on. We've acknowledged the fact that actually organisations across the country, small organisations, need... That's where the effort is needed. With all due respect to, as it were, everybody in the room, Jeremy Hunt and to others, we need to spend less time thinking about how we get big donations to big organisations from board members or others in London and start thinking about how we can unlock that funding, that giving from individuals around the country who maybe you know, don't earn very much at all but are prepared to put their hands in the pocket and give, give very generously yes. indeed. And I think that's where there's a real opportunity for the arts across yes, the Yes, thank you. Roger, would you like to contribute to I've got, uh, it's Roger Grave, I've got two hats here. One is I've been chair of Complicite for 20 years, 
and the other is that um, I'm an advisor to the Paul Hamlin Foundation. And indeed, we'll have to go, sorry, because we're about to give money to a theater company that tours the, the country and does reach the, um, the homeless and the um, uh, people who don't normally go to the theater or take part. And one of the things that's come out of my experience in both hats, if you like, is the need to be much more rigorous about what the proposition is that we approach people to give money for, whether it's the state or donors. And that's been a tremendous discipline. I mean, really tremendous. When I first joined Complicite, it was a bunch of very talented people who were all over the place and a board that never met and that really just was having fun. Uh, it was great fun, but over the 20 years, I've brought on people with management experience, with money, who really understand this stuff. And the proposition has been clearer and clearer and clearer. And I don't resent the requirement. I think it's been very good for us. And the theatre company that we're about to talk to has done the same journey. When I first saw them in Edinburgh 20 years ago, again, it was the same thing. A brilliant genius all over the place. I thought they'd last a very short time, even became a patron of theirs because it was such good work. 20 years later, they've got a university assessing their work. They've got a very clear proposition, even to the kinds of audiences they will reach. And I think that's been good for them as well. The, the, the need to focus and make clear what it is the transaction would be is terribly important. But the thing I wanted to leave as a question, I'm afraid I will have to go to Julian, is this business about um, the two's a, two to tango and three's a crowd. The question becomes, what is the offer? For those people. I can help with that. Where, where, I mean, in your, I mean, I love this. I go there all the time. The architecture is even the best thing about it because yeah. people participate in that. Yeah. They actually experience it. Yeah. And in that sense, what we try and do at Complicite, taking it out like Julia to, to, to kids who've never heard they can't spell theatre, is that you hope that they will engage some part of themselves that up to that point has said, as Nick does all the time, the arts are for other people, not for us. Yeah. Judy, would I just say a quick Thank word on that before yes. Dan comes in? Um, education and public programs, if you're publicly funded, is the meat and drink of what we do. Because um, communication with the community, however broad that is, international, is the stuff and meat of people coming to, to participate in our work. And um, I think there are a number of things. One is I've offered for what it's worth... Um, my experience as a mid-scale organisation and what it's like to be a fundraiser and, and you know, uh, pounding the pavements. And it's not something that yet has been taken up. Or, uh, there is no orchestration of those people who probably, f for reasons over time, have had some experience, um, like me, to, uh, to be twinned, which I think is an incredibly good idea of Will's, with other organisations outside London. In terms of community, I think it's incredibly... Uh, uh, we had to learn the hard way. Um, and um, the sense of community is something that any arts organisation in the country can build. And this sounds smug coming from somebody who's in London and, you know, is used to raising money. It really, really isn't. I really genuinely and passionately believe that if there is an audience of any scale whatsoever, those people are potential donors to what you do. I mean, I really think it's as simple as that. And this is about mindset. It's, you know, as soon as you get words like philanthropy being bandied around now, you know, at the rate of knots, at any occasion, this is a new buzzword, philanthropy, philanthropy. This has been going on for literally decades and indeed <coughs> centuries. So it's not a new idea, but people looking to it as sort of rather like drowning men, cling, men and women clinging to straws, because what do we do in these very, very uncertain times? 
we look to something that will save us, which comes back to the, the question, which I uh, fundamentally disagree with, because the arts do not need saving. What we need to do is gather our resources so that we can look and invent new models that are going to sustain us in an economically different time, of which philanthropy is only one aspect. But it's about plurality of funding, making better arguments to government, being on the barricades, if I can put it like that, and to really engage the public. If we engage the public, which is a very sophisticated kind of education program about what we do, why we do it, and therefore why we want our support, I believe, and I hope not naively, that support in a wide variety of different forms will be forthcoming. It does bring us back to this point about ownership of the arts, and I think, Colin, you wanted to say something about that. Yeah, just briefly. Um, one thing is, I think, um, Julie, your figures about um, people's salaries come from our research, doesn't it? I hope it does. Um, well, yes, indeed, I didn't make it up. Our um, we, we could make it up. Um, arts and business, in the figures we announced last Thursday, and I have read my notes here. We have an interactive map, a new benchmarking tool, which will which sounds great. I never know what benchmarking tool is. However, I'll be told off by my colleagues for um, not having um, my knowledge clear. But we all stakeholders, all of you, can now interrogate the figures we have. So we have far more information about who is giving, where it's giving, and these these figures. As I stressed before, though the rich give the most to the arts. Um, by percentage of, of income, it is the poor. Um, always has been and always will be. John mentioned his very keen view on membership. One of the great success stories in America is a sense of ownership, a sense of local commitment. You know the state or your normally either federal or local will not save anything. So if you want to save it, if you want it opened, if you want it funded, you have to do it yourself. So that membership approach, that democratisation, which um, Will Gomez has talked about many times about how do we engage local communities. And I think um, both Graham Hitchin and Sally Taylor have put their finger on it. We need to think of who are our constituencies. And the forests, I mean, I think the campaign for the forests and the campaign for public libraries, I think the government hasn't realised the power of those movements. The arts community are way behind. It was, it was perceived by most people as a metropolitan elite talking to a metropolitan elite. Arts and business is an organisation in transformation, dramatic transformation. We are going to focus completely on this new issue of where do we get the money from, to who do we give it to, and it is actually transforming, creating a membership and a commitment of local people, both rich and poor, who will commit to their organisations. It's not letting the state off the hook, but we have to do it, because actually it is about saving the arts. The arts will not die in the metropolitan elite circle. Sorry to sound so aggressive about this, but the arts and arts institutions will die all over the country if they are not saved by their communities, and we must galvanise those communities. We haven't even started, but if arts and business can be transformed, we will be doing that, and that will be our future mission. Thank you. Will, would you like to come in? Because I know you have very strong views about the sense of art, the arts and for everyone. Indeed, the Arts Council's 10-year strategy document is called Achieving Great Art for Everyone. Perhaps you have a few thoughts on that. 
Well, I, I thought I think the point made a, a few minutes ago, which is a really important one, which is the one around education. Mm. And education picks up a lot of philanthropic giving within the arts, but it is an unsexy thing. And a lot of the arts institutions I spoke to around the time of the, you know, when the cuts were coming, although they haven't yet been implemented, was, well, it's the education programme which is going to go. If you couple that with um, ideas which have been banded around by the government that humanities will no longer get any funding whatsoever at degree level because they're cheap to do, that you can do, you can, you know, that you can afford to provide that degree for six thousand pounds a year, whatever it is, it's a real worry because you end up with just an arts sector which is just bourgeois, it's just the middle middle classes, and then you think, well, gosh, if that's the case, would we have a Damien Hirst and a Tracy Emin in the twenty-first century? Is that something? which is of the 20th century, where are all those voices where people have got to say something really interesting, who might be angry, who might have something challenging to say us? Where, do they, where are they going to get a platform and the education and the contacts which you find at these places to, to excel and, and find their voices? So I think education within the arts, all the way back from schools into university and the really extraordinary outreach programmes, a lot of these institutions do both big and small, is a hugely vulnerable area which could be absolutely decimated by the cuts. But and I think that, yes. that, that, that to me strikes... But I, the, the other side of that coin is it is quite a sexy philanthropic ask if you package it up properly. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Uh, Diane, you wanted to, to come in with a few words. Well, no, I just wanted to... Diane Abbott, I'm a consumer of the arts. I just wanted to say two things. There was uh, a lady there who complains about government officials not understanding the language of lyricism and beauty. I would argue that a lot of patrons don't understand the language of lyricism and beauty. What they do understand is if they look like they understand, it makes them seem posher and in some sense sanitises their money. So just standing up for government officials there. But the, the, the other point I was going to make is that, no, I don't think... I mean, philanthropy has existed in the arts since the Medici at the very least. But I don't think it can substitute <coughs> government money because of the, the point that a couple of you have touched on. If you look at this panel, and we are in the most diverse city, one of the most diverse cities in the world, and that's what gives the artistic scene, including the fine art, its energy and makes it cutting edge. And yet this is a very undiverse panel. And the danger of, thi of thinking as poor Jeremy Hunt Things that you can substitute philanthropy for government money is what you get is a type of philanthropist that tends to be happier supporting work which reflects their reality, even if it's a reality that embraces the Medici. And yet, I live in Hackney, the edge of the known world, as far as you know, <laughs> posh bankers are concerned. But you know, it's absolutely alive with artistic endeavour. We have a great theatre, the Arcola which you know is in The Guardian this week. You have the fantastic gallery scene and art scene in Hoxton and Shoreditch. You can go out on a Saturday and on market stalls buy videos of Nigerian films. Now you will say Nigerian movies, but guess what? The Nigerians have invented a movie industry during 20 years, I think, will be where Bollywood is. So I'm saying it's alive with art and without state funds. Some of it is funded, funds itself, <laughs> but without state funding, that diversity could not exist and flourish. And actually it's that diversity, whether it's the clubs, the music, the songs in the gospel, you know, the gospel choirs, that's what gives the London arts scene as a whole its edge. So I would know for that purpose could never substitute for state funding. Yes. 
Thank you, Dan. Well, as I'm sure you know, you've read the um, Arts Council's 10-year strategy, and one of the five goals is to have a diverse and skilled workforce in the arts. So um, we're working on that. Now, there's a question from the front. I do want to hear if there are any philanthropists in the audience or anyone who wants to stand up for philanthropists. If you put your hand up, you'll, you will get, uh, you'll be put at the front of the queue. So uh, second row first. Thank you. Uh, my name's Mary Picken. Um, uh, for three years of my life, I was really privileged to work as an arts officer for the Scottish Trade Union Congress. Um, and we had that role because we believed that as an organisation, it was part of our duty in a wider civic society to adopt, if you like, the William Morris ten tenant, the one that says, I don't want art for a few any more than I want education for a few or freedom for a few. Um, and the one thing that I found was that there was an enormous appetite and hunger from mass membership organisations to engage in the arts. What it needed was someone approaching them and saying, how can you as a community, as a branch, <coughs> as a regional organisation, begin to engage with the artists and the art activity that is happening where you live on a regional mm. and a local basis. And to begin with, people were enormously surprised that anyone would ask them. Mm. But once they kind of came on board with the opportunities, we were able to run a program which encompassed everything from buying out nights at Scottish Opera to, frankly, funding some bits of agitprop theatre and everything in between. So I think from what the panel are saying about membership and about regional and about local, there is something around tapping in to the community engagement and the membership organisations that already exist in a way that can really engage and harness support for the arts. Thank you very much. Right, now, anyone going to stand up for philanthropists? Anyone um, even admit to being a philanthropist? There's one at the back. I see three in the There's room the, at least. I bet there are some lurking. I'll name them if they're not careful. <laughs> well, here's one and a very good one. I'm Claire Parsons from Lanson's Communications. And um, so we're huge supporters of the arts altogether. But what we've offered is a small theatre company that... Um, looks for new um, theatre work and puts it on around the country, is we provide infrastructural support. So we provide all the IT, our meeting rooms, they all do rehearsal um, in. We support them in many different ways with our sharing of skills. And then on but we don't give them any money whatsoever. But actually we're providing all the money for them to actually then um, spend all their time creating fantastic work and just being the great artists they are. So I think there's lots of things we can do. Do you have a question for the panel specifically on, on what more could be done or how we actually encourage more people to do what you're doing? I think it's more that the person at the, um, at the front was talking about there is no home and they have no home where, where it is. And I just think businesses can give far more without actually putting any criteria at all on, on the gift of that. that and how, how, how do you think we engage those new businesses? Because it's something we hear a lot about. But how do you think that, that you, 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 you identify them and you actually bring them into your um, organisation? What do you think are the best ways? I think it's ways? hugely difficult, isn't it? Because it comes from an individual who feels strongly about something which is going to influence their money or influence anything around them as well. 
I mean, I used um, Arts and Business because we wanted to have an artist in residence in our office as well to be able to explore the creativity that we could actually have in there too. And I think we all have to just find what are the ways we can actually engage with, with the arts world and benefit from it in terms of, of different things. So I, 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 I think it's from all of us. We all can actually do something individually and it's not just about money and that's the thing I just think it's important for us to know. Yes. Perhaps also it can come through connections from the board, new members of the board. I don't know, Nick, whether you have a view about this, whether you think a really active board can bring in new ideas about funding from local business or new philanthropists. Do you think it can work? Yes, I think it can work. It's just a a huge (coughs) struggle to identify those people who who wish to join you as an organisation. That's always the big problem, is that a lot of people... Uh, advocate for your organisation and when you ask them to put their money or their time where their mouth is it's always quite difficult because it's very very difficult sourcing and finding the outlets where you can raise money I think we're also, um, there's also a charity called Getting On Board which tries to match senior people who want to give their skills (coughs) and charities as well so there are small organisations and I know arts and businesses do it as well but there are lots of people who just don't know what they can give. Yes. And who, who I mean, be interested to know whose role you think it is to get that information out there. Is it the role of the arts organisation to find them? Is it the role of the Arts Council? Is it the role of the arts and business? I mean, it'd be interesting to know. Anyway, let's see, has some more questions. The gentleman on the left with his hand up. Thank you. Hi, my name's James Walker. I'm the director of Young Film Academy. Um, Coming to that point about education, we work with uh, 7,500 young people every year. Our remit is to work across the UK, helping them, uh, age 6 to 18, get involved in filmmaking. And not just so that we can have the next generation of Steven Spielberg, but because uh, visual media will be a part of the next generation's lives in a far greater way than it even is imaginable today. And I just want to go one step back down the sort of logic ladder here. And I I think that from seeing all these young people, I think there's a real danger uh, amongst the next generation that arts, there's an assumption that arts is a lost leader. We've all kind of, I think, fallen into that to some degree. We're all here talking about arts need saving. We brought up this idea of being a victim. But where is the role for genuine entrepreneurial spirit within the arts? So the idea that it, you know, you don't, art can produce more than it costs. Where is that spirit amongst the next generation? And are we, are we in danger, as I say, of falling into the assumption that, that arts has to be, in some way, a lost leader? Thank you. Um, Julia's very efficiently just drawn my attention to the time. Um, so I think we're going to have to close the session. But um, I'd just like to do two things before we finish. Um, firstly, I think it would be rather fun to have a vote and to, to ask the audience, do you think that on the whole you are in favour of more private giving and more philanthropy in the arts? If so, please put up your hand. Yes. Is that as, a, as, so, against, is so, that as against state subsidy? Yeah, no, no, just... Just you, generally. No, just generally. Yeah. Just generally is a good idea. So the next, the next stage of this vote is to ask each member of the panel one thing that they think they, that could be... Um, introduced or, or, or developed to encourage um, more philanthropic and private giving. So why don't we start at the end of the table with Will, because you've had great experience from Tate. So one wish, what on your wish list, what would you ask for? 
I think I've come up with a splendid idea already, so I'm going to repeat it. I think the twinning idea is Thank worth you. pursuing. Excellent. Nick? Um, I, I would endorse the twinning idea too, right? um, because it's, it's something that National have started to do, and I think it would be great if it also happened across the arts, in that it tends to happen <laughs> in the theatre quite a lot, but it doesn't happen with the theatre doing it with galleries or dance companies doing it with visual arts. And I think we could all get together a little bit more and be a little more entrepreneurial about those sort of things too. Julia? I like, um, I fully endorse the twinning idea. Um, uh, I would like business to run uh, masterclasses in how they want uh, funding applications to be made to them so we can learn better how to get an improved result. Thank you. I'm um, your motto, I think, at the Arts Council is great art for everyone, isn't it? Is it for Achieving em- great art for everyone is the title yeah. on the table. I think strategy. there's one word which is wrong, and it's the word for. It should be the word with. The real problem in Britain, people are doing things for people. <coughs> if we want to galvanise our communities, we have to do it with people. Let's start today with and change your slogan to with. <laughs> thank you all very much for coming and thank you to my panel and I hope you've enjoyed the morning. Thank you. I should have said the standard application.